And the rest of you turn to Revelation chapter 6 and find Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Revelation 6. Okay, why don't we stand together as a congregation and let's read Revelation 6. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that the men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades, and that was following after him. Authority is given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw those underneath the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? on those who dwell on the earth. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, made out of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky began to fall to earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide in us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Please be seated. <clears throat> I feel like I've preached a sermon already and I haven't even started. So, <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad for you guys. We'll find out. All right. Well, as you can tell by the reading this morning, we are now in chapter six of Revelation. And what makes this chapter unique is that this is often the place where many Christians who began faithfully reading Revelation from the beginning of chapter one often come to a grinding halt. It's also the place for many pastors who couldn't wait to teach this to their churches because they finally understood the letter and we're going to teach them the truths actually quit <laughs> when they find out actually what's going on here. And those of you who are familiar with the letter understand why. From here on in until the end, everything gets super confusing, super weird, and for good reason, because we're all exposed to sorts of strange imagery of beasts and monsters and so on and so forth, and confusing timelines that are really hard to figure out. 
Now, I know Revelation has been this way for me in the past, and this is why I never taught it, hardly ever read it, and just quoted from a couple verses here and there about what heaven was going to be like, or maybe a quote from the seven churches, and that's about it. But I believe if we remember everything we've learned so far and follow the trajectory we've been on, we can actually get a clear picture from here on in of what emerges. And we can actually comprehend for the first time what for me in the past has seemed so incomprehensible. So let's review where we've been. In the opening of the letter, five words pop out. The first five words say, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation, therefore, is a book about Jesus. If we just stop there, we've learned enough. It's a book about Jesus. With it being a book about Jesus, then, it makes sense in the early chapter that the first thing that happens is that John opens with the gospel. That's how he starts the letter. And he talks about how Jesus died for our sins. And by his blood, we are purchased to become a people of God. It's also, this also makes sense then as to why after he gives the gospel, the first vision he receives is of Jesus Christ, with the white hair like wool, the feet burnished with bronze, eyes like flames of fire. He gets a magnificent picture of Jesus to teach him about the spiritual realities of who this guy really is. And so after this, he's then told to write seven messages to the seven churches because Jesus had something to say to these churches. So you remember in chapter two and three, he gave them words of praise when they were doing things in loyalty to him. And he gave them words of concern and rebuke whenever they were sinning against him. And remember, we, we've learned so far that um, we could see why these churches were, were compromising in many ways, because life in the Roman world was tough. Was it ever tough? There was persecution and all sorts of tribulations, and there was always this, this uh, pull on your heart to compromise and, because to escape persecution. So chapter 4, then, was to give them a new perspective, to put on spiritual glasses so they could see truly who was on the throne. And it wasn't the one in Rome who was, it was the Lord God in the heavens. And he was worthy of worship. But you remember, there's a problem in heaven in chapter 5. There's a problem. God's holding a scroll, representing the, the decrees over human history, namely that he, he needs to judge ungodliness and vindicate the, the Christian people who've been righteous. But there's no one in heaven that can advance God's plan for human history. No one can be found. No one can be found. And, it's, and the problem, too, is that it's sealed shut. So who is this man or who is this person that's going to be, this deity or whatever, is going to you know, advance God's plans for human history because no one's found to be worthy. And then they find Jesus. No one except Jesus. And he was worthy to advance God's plans for history, to bring judgment upon the ungodly and to, uh, and to establish the kingdom because he was the one who was in history who laid his life down for the world. He died for sins of humanity from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He purchased them with their blood, his blood so that they could enter into relationship with God and hence he was worthy. See how awesome Revelation is in the first six chapter, five chapters? There's no confusion. Isn't it beautiful? So now in chapter six, to the end of the letter, Jesus is going to advance God's plans for human history. And he's going to 
unfold the events of the scroll and execute his decrees. So before we dive in, let's make a couple preliminary comments in regards to the judgments that we're going to see. The first is the structure of them. Actually, you know what? Yeah, let's just go to them, yeah. The, the structure. We have in Revelation from chapter 6 to 616, 6 to 216, 21 judgments. We have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Now, what's unique about them is that the seven seals and the trumpets and bowls act like the Ukrainian doll. You, work, you walk through the seven seals, and on the seventh seal, you pop it open, and inside is seven trumpets. You go through the seven trumpets, and at the end of the seventh trumpet, you open it up, and you come to seven bowls, and they're unfolded. So at the, at the, at the end of the sevens is a new set of judgments, okay? So this is important. But in between the six and seven trumpets and seals is an intermission, an interlude. And it stops there because John, well, Jesus, through John, wants to ask and answer really important questions. So in light of the first six seals, what does this mean? Let's stop and pause. In light of the six trumpets, let's, what does this mean? Let's stop and pause. And actually, between the seventh trumpet and the first bowl, there's another huge intermission. I should have written that in there. Another huge intermission, and he wants you to stop and pause. Okay, and what's cool is like, we're going to do a whole sermon on the intermissions because we're asking and answering really important questions. So that's the structure of, of these, and you need to know that. In relation to these judgments, one of the biggest learning curves in my study of Revelation in the last year has been this. These judgments are, and again, I know I go against the, the Western norm in North America when I say this, but these judgments, I believe, are not to be understood as a linear timeline. God doesn't go through the seven and then go through the seven and then go through the seven. They're not to be understood in that way. Instead, we're to look at these God's judgments from different perspectives. And there's a fancy word that I've learned called recapitulation. Recapitulation means to repeat something, to go over it again. And so what he's doing is he's going to use uh, similar understandings in these judgments to help you repeat certain themes and he wants you you're going to see actually the same things that occur in the seals occur in the trumpets and occur in the bowls he's repeating himself over and over but that's not unfamiliar to the bible is it in genesis 1 we get the first six days of creation first seven i guess with the arrest chapter two and three we get a retelling of genesis 1. He, what he does is he takes the big picture and goes into a microcosm of a specific inc incidences and things happening in chapters two and three. Well, that's what we have in, in here as well. We kind of have like these big pictures, but he goes into narrow pictures and we're to learn things about God and his character in these things. And I'm going to demonstrate this to you at the very end to try to convince you. <laughs> and that's okay if you don't... If, if I can't convince you, that's okay. You're still welcome in this church. But I'm going to try to convince you that this is the way that we're to understand Revelation. All right. So let's begin by, uh, by looking at the um, 
first four seals. I'm not going to read the first four because we already have, and I, I, we have to like, you know, be conscious of our time to some degree. So let me just say this. The image of the four horsemen, like usual, is completely rooted in the Old Testament. In Zechariah 6 and 1 through 5, we see for the first time the, fur, the four horsemen. And we find these, these horsemen in Zechariah in almost the identical colors as the one in Revelation. But what's interesting is in Zechariah, they're, they're carrying out God's judgment on nations. They're carrying out God's judgment on nations. And so this is what we have here. In the first four horsemen, Jesus breaks the seal and sort of hands over authority, if you will, to the living creature, like one of God's heavenly entourage, and they go forth and execute judgment in this world. Now, the, the judgment comes in four categories. Does any of you have in your Bible, actually, uh, a little phrase above your Bible that talks about the categories? Have, has any of your Bibles labeled them? Like the first horseman is, the first, second horseman is. Has anyone got any titles? False Christ? Okay. Second one? No? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, so I will, I'm going to change the first one, and, and you'll see why. The first one, I believe, is actually speaking about military conquest military conquest. The second one is about, is about war, bloodshed and war. The third one is to do with famine, and the fourth one has to do with death. Okay, so we have conquest, war, famine, and death. These are God's judgments on the, um, the earth. Now, how does God execute judgment then in these four categories? I'm going to suggest to you, suggest to you two possibilities. Two possibilities and how God can do this. Um, and the first one is pervasive amongst the scholars and the commentators. And so it's a difference between pass God's passive hand in judgment and God's active hand in judgment. So let me describe passive hand. Here's the passive hand of God in judgment. Um, as creator, God puts certain laws, physical and moral, into play in the universe. If you disobey those laws, there's going to be consequences. So let's think about gravity. Gravity. Okay? God's going to put gravity to keep your feet on this earth. If you go to the edge of a cliff and you step off, well, you can pray all you want. I can tell you what's probably going to happen. And it's not going to go well for you. It's a built-in consequence. But God isn't the one actively judging you. You just chose to disobey one of his fundamental rules for life. Likewise, morally. Morally, God says, be a peaceful person. Do not be retaliatory. If you do, life won't go well for you. So if you choose to be retaliatory, unforgiving and bitter and so on, I can tell you what life's going to look like for you because God set it up that way. But God is not actively smiting you when you get like someone's revengeful back. He's just saying, listen, I told you in the Proverbs not to do this, and you're doing this, and so this is eating the fruit of your own way. That's what Proverbs in chapter 1 says. You eat the fruit of your own way when you don't go God's way morally. So therefore, therefore, again, the pervasive thought amongst the commentators is this. The is this issue of conquest and war and famine and death, it's the result of the world saying, you know what, God? Screw you. I'm going my way, not your way. And God says, fine, here's what it is. You're gonna, it's going to be a life of hell and misery to live against me. 
And so that's what happens. I would suggest, though, a different look. And again, you're free to choose either one. I actually suggest that what's going on here is God's active hand of judgment. Active hand, where he actually is bringing famine. He is bringing war. He is bringing death. The reason I say this is because I actually think he, I know he's borrowing language from Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14, it's identical language. Let me show you the text. Ezekiel 14 says this, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both men and beasts, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they could not, they could not deliver themselves, declares the Lord. Sorry, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. And then in verse 15, he says, if I were to cause the wild beasts to pass through the land and they depopulate it. And then in 17, he says, or if I should bring a sword on that country and let it pass through and cut off that man and beast. And then in summary of the whole, ver of the whole section, he says in 21, I will send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague. Now look at verse 8 and read that out loud. With, well, no, I'll read it out loud. <laughs> Just read it with me. He says, he says uh, actually I'll start in, um, yeah, in 8. I looked and behold, an ashen horse, he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades, and there following him, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with famine, with pestilence, and with wild beasts. The same four plagues that exist in Ezekiel. Well, that's powerful. That's powerful. Because those things are prevalent in Revelation 6. And so in the Old Testament, we have examples of this. We have examples. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Israel is to take the land of Canaan. Why are they given the land of Canaan? Because he says, because of their wickedness in verse 4. God doesn't want to execute judgment like this. But he's been watching Canaan for centuries sin against God in vile, vile ways, sacrificing their children in the, in, the, in the plains of the deserts and so on and so forth. And he says, you know what? I am done. I'm executing judgment. Israel's taking your land. But just so Israel didn't get sort of too uh, arrogant, uh, he said, the same will happen to you in reverse if you don't obey me. <laughs> and guess what? We have examples of that in the Old Testament. A really important text is 2 Chronicles 36, 17. Zedekiah is leading Israel in sin. The prophets are warning him. They won't repent. And I'll quote the verse. Therefore, God brought up against the, them, Israel, the king of the Chaldeans, who slew the young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on them and gave them all into the king's hand. So again, this is my suggestion here, that what's happening here is God's act of judgment coming forth on the world for his, the rebellion against him and the treatment of his saints. Now, this would provide comfort to the first century believers who were being persecuted. And God is saying, I have done this kind of thing in the past. I can do this thing in the future as well. It's the kind of thing that I do. Now, the question I had was, 
Well, does God do this today? And if so, how would I know? And I would say this, he probably does and probably has. The problem is we will never know because only he knows those things. But that's what start making you think about countries who are super anti-God and rebel against him and think about the life of misery that they live in terms of the quality of life and the things that happen. It could be the hand of God just saying, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. So let's look at the fifth seal. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on this earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. The vision here is quite remarkable. It makes us stop to think. Because it's a scene of many, many believers who had been martyred in this lifetime who are now present in God or present in the, in the Lord's presence and asking about vindication. Recognizing too that there were more on this earth that were facing the same predicament as him, as them. And they had a, they had a fantastic question and, and, a, and a, a good question, right? You know, God, if you're so just and you're one to hand out judgment, when are we going to be avenged and when are they going to be avenged? And God's answer, I would suggest, is one of the most shocking lines in all of Revelation. One of the most shocking lines in all of Revelation. He said, tell them that they need to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. God said, not yet. The rescue will come, but not yet. You're going to have to go through it. They're going to have to go through it. And you're going to have to wait for vindication to come to you as well. That would be hard to hear, wouldn't it? As a reader in the first century, you've already experienced loss in Smyrna. In chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus had already said, you're going to be tested, imprisoned, hold fast even till death. In Pergamum, one of your own members, Antipas, had already lost his life in verse 13. Many of your, maybe you are an older generation and maybe uh, your grandparents had just come out of the, the persecution that Nero had executed on the land like 20, 30 years earlier. And now you're told to rest. How do we make sense of an answer like that? We're going to approach this from a different couple angles here. First of all, we need to get a biblical perspective on what Jesus promised in regards to suffering. In John 15 and verse 18, Jesus said this, Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Understand that it hated me first. John 15 and verse 20, he then says, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then in John 16 and verse 33, he said, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. And friends, that's the reality of the church in China, Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, all over the world. 
The problem is that our view of Christianity in the West just doesn't line up with that scripture. That's the problem. And when the church seeks to go the way of the lamb, it will suffer the same treatment as the lamb. Now, that's not to say all who identify with Jesus will be killed for their faith, or that only those who die for their faith are true followers. That's not what I'm saying. But what it does mean is this, and I'll quote Paul Spilsbury. He said that true discipleship requires a life of self-sacrifice. Life at times may come through death, and victory may come through defeat. And so that's the New Testament example. And in Acts 14.22, Paul says this. Paul and Barnabas were, were present amongst these Christian brethren, and they said they were there strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is Paul speaking to the churches there. And this is important because in the Western society, we believe, unfortunately, that life as a believer is to go from one spiritual endorphin high to another. Look for the next spiritual high and chase after that. Find the, the you know, where the, you know, find where the best music is played in Calgary, get to that church for an hour and worship. Then go to the next church with other worship services where you can have like the amazing drums and the light shows and go there and get, get filled. And I'm not putting down that kind of music. I, I mean, it'd be great. I'd enjoy that as well. And I do enjoy that. But we're looking for the next spiritual high. We're looking to be happy, to, to you know, all these things constantly. And again, it's not like Jesus doesn't think we can be happy. I'm not saying that either. But here's the point. Um, there's nothing in the scriptures that promise that we're, this is the norm of the Christian experience. It's not the model of the New Testament. Jesus did not lead an easy life, nor did the apostles after them. So the first thing we have to do is get the right perspective, get out of this Western Disneyland view of Christianity. The second reason why this might happen or would happen is because that's what the cost of freedom is. Like, I remember being taught this line, like, love can't exist without free will. To be truly loved, free will has to be fully intact. If free will is not intact, you can't feel truly loved or truly give love. Because you're coerced into receiving or giving. We're not robotic. So God says this, the cost of freedom has to exist in this world. There's a cost to rebel against me, and there's also a cost to, like, or, you know, to be loyal to me. But I'm not going to like force my hand on you. You have to choose. And so we live in a world that's broken and full of consequences, and we bump shoulders with evil. And again, not that we're to like hardship, not that we're to seek for it, nor that get, God can't even step in and rescue. My, he does this a lot, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego in the fire, fiery furnace. James, you know, James uh, was beheaded, but Peter was rescued out of prison. God can do those things. He can, but again, it's the cost of freedom when we live in these circumstances. But one of the biggest reasons I think the Lord allows this to happen is because, because of his, his desire for a bigger spiritual family. In 2 Peter 3, 9, he's just handing out judgment. He talks about the days of Noah, and now he talks about the days in the future when fire is going to come upon the earth. And then he says this in the midst of the judgment scenes, he says, but God is patient 
not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You hear the power of those words? So the Christians are going, why aren't you executing judgment now, God? And he says, because I want none to perish and all to come to repentance. He wants a big family. So he's slow in withholding judgments many times as he's waiting for us to do our work in evangelism to bring people to Christ. So let's look at the sixth seal because the sixth seal is awesome because it answers the cry of seal five. When, Lord? How, Lord? You know, when's this going to happen? And so Jesus doesn't leave them hanging. He says, let me tell you about the day when I do come and when I do execute justice. So let's read 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as the sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by the great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and free men hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said in the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide from the presence of him who sits in the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand. The sixth seal, of course, was to bring assurance to the brethren and the sisters in the first century church. Yes, I hear your cry, but you need to be patient and persevere, but I will come. And when I do, it is going to be terrifying for those who are around to face my wrath. As powerful as these kings and commanders thought they were, and as much as they made life misery on earth, For the Christians back then, they were going to be absolutely powerless if God came back in their timing. And likewise for the rulers today, because we're still 2,000 years removed and nothing's happened yet. But when he comes, the world and its rulers, as, as impressive as they think they are, will be absolutely powerless to face the Lamb. And it's crazy here, it's metaphorical, but they would rather be crushed, crushed in a basic, basically an avalanche of rock than face the wrath of God. And again, this was just to provide comfort that they would one day be vindicated and their cries would be heard. But I want to finish with one point. And it gets back to my, my um, comment in the introduction about Revelation's judgments are not to be seen as a linear timeline of events, but recapitulation. The same thing repeated over and over to help teach certain spiritual truths. When you read verse 12, that language there should sound very familiar to you. I looked and I saw a six seal and a great earthquake. The sun became black and the sackcloth of hair and the whole moon became like blood. Matthew 24, Jesus describes his coming in that way. He describes it coming in that way. And so therefore we need to look at that right now and read this together. So let's turn there. To Matthew 24, keep your fingers in Revelation 6. The point of doing this with you is to say this, we're going to demonstrate to you that the second coming of Christ and the end 
with judgment occurs in the trumpets, the bowls, and the seals. So the second coming of Christ doesn't happen at the end of the bowls. The second coming of Christ and the judgment comes at each judgment. That's the point to prove that Jesus Christ can't come back three times. Hence why it can't be a linear timeline. Okay, so let's work through this together in Matthew 24, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the Son of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Then he goes into a parable of a fig tree, and then a really important scene in verse 36. He talks about his coming is going to be like in the days of Noah. What happened in the days of Noah? Some people were taken in judgment, and some were left behind, and the left behind were Noah and his family. So the ones left behind were the ones saved from the wrath of God, and the ones taken were taken in judgment. Then he says this in 42, Therefore be an alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if he of the head of the house had known at the time of the, of the night that the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. The key from here, he's coming in a thief-like manner. That's where the whole Jesus coming like a thief in the might has come from. He describes himself here as coming like a thief in the night. All of these things are linked together as one, to describe his second coming. Everything here. So let's review. In Matthew 24, 29 to 44, we have the sun going dark, the moon having no light. We have the stars falling from the sky. We have the heavens shaken. We have the Son of Man coming on the clouds. We have the judgment of unbelievers that Noah's seen. We have the day of the Lord coming and coming like a thief. That's Matthew 24. And here's what's important. Nobody in the Christian community that I know denies this is the second coming of Jesus. We, agree, we, we can disagree theologically on many things. No one I've ever heard says this is not the second coming. No one's ever said that to me. And if you think differently, I'd love to hear your, your comments and I'll be willing to accept them. But everyone I know pervasively says that's the second coming of Jesus. So now let's go to Revelation chapter 6. What do we see? The sun going dark and the moon with no light, that's verse 12. The stars falling from the sky, that's verse 13. The heavens shaken, that's 614, right? The, the, the sky split apart like a scroll. We do not have any reference to the Son of Man coming on the clouds, particularly yet. We have the judgment of unbelievers in verse 16. Fallen us caves and mountains and rocks, who can stand before the, the wrath of God, right? The day of the Lord is coming, that's in 617. It says that for the great day of the wrath has come and who's able to stand? So what we're missing so far in here is the son of man coming on the clouds like a thief. So really important, according to John, it's over in Revelation six, it's done. The end has come, Jesus has come back. His second coming is complete here in this section of scripture. So let's move forward now. Um, if we move forward, the Son of Man coming in the clouds occurs in Revelation 14, 14. And let me read this to you. 
Then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden sickle and crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came into the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Second coming of Jesus on the clouds is occurring in 14, yet the second coming of Jesus occurs in Revelation 6, eight chapters later. Consider the thief in the night. That occurs in Revelation 16, 15. I'm going to read this to you. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. So what we have three times in Revelation from 6 to 16 is the second coming of Jesus three times. It cannot, therefore, church, be a chronological timeline of judgment. He wants you to learn certain things in the seal judgments. He wants you to learn certain things about God in the bold judgments. He wants you to learn certain things about him in the, the trumpets and so on. The end comes over and over in Revelation. The judgment of the ungodly comes over and over in Revelation. The vindication of the saints comes over and over in Revelation. And the establishment of his kingdom occurs over and over in Revelation. Recapitulation to teach certain spiritual truths about God. The exciting part is found in the last question, though, in, in Revelation 6. They ask, the ungodly ask, who is able to stand the wrath of God on the day of his coming? And hold on, because that's coming next week in our sermon. All right. I know I said a lot, and some of you are still really confused. There's no doubt about it, because I have had to work through this for a year. I'll do my best to make it clear in the dialogue, and I'll, if, if necessary, I'll revisit the question again next week before Revelation 7 to make it clear. Sometimes it's clear here, but not coming out of here, so I apologize if I confused you. But let me give you the lessons for today. God can bring war, famine, plague, and death as means of judgment against countries who have sinned against them. That's clear. God can, God did that in history. We have Old Testament records of him doing that. So the, 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 so the reality is in the future or even in the present, he can still do that. The hard thing for us is we just don't know when because God never tells us unless he, unless he reveals it through a trustworthy prophet, we'll never know. But it is interesting to think about and should create fun dialogue around the, 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 the supper table or at the breakfast in the mornings. Number two, Although God can rescue believers in the midst of trial and persecution, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, uh, Peter in jail, the Christian norm is for him to allow us to go through it and trust in his timing for judgment. That's the Christian norm. That's, it's hard to swallow, but that's the Christian norm. Now, while going God's way in life gives us the best possibility of living an abundant life here and now, Persecution and suffering can be a reality that we're going to have to face without God's rescue. And that's the result of freedom and the result of God wanting a bigger spiritual family. And so we just have to persevere and trust in his timing. 
knowing that the rewards for faithfulness are immense, which is one of the themes of Revelation. The last three chapters seeks to describe the rewards to just to excite you about what's prepared for you. Even the seven messages to the seven churches, he ended every letter with a promise of what you're going to receive. Finally, the series of judgments in Revelation are not written to provide a linear timeline for future events before Christ's return, but to use the literary technique of recapitulation to teach certain spiritual truths. Okay, and so my job is to help you understand what those truths are and what those actually mean. So I'm going to lay my heart and cards on the table of what I think Revelation's about. And again, this will stand in contradiction to some what I used to believe. Like, if I heard this out of my mouth a year and a half ago, I'd be like, whatever, you're such a crazy like kook, like get out of like, get out of the church kind of thing, you know. I'd have put myself down in ridicule. But I realize now that I've had to like uh, revisit my theological positions because Revelation forced me to do so. So you're still welcome here, and we, I still love you, and we can worship together, even if you disagree. But let me just tell you what I think Revelation is about. The purpose of the letter is this. It's not a crystal ball, but a radical call. It's not a crystal ball, but a radical call. It's not a crystal ball to the future to give you a roadmap to help you understand all the events that are going to take place before Christ's return so you can get ready and look for this earthquake and look for that sun to go dark and look for this and look for that. That's not what Revelation's about. Revelation is saying this. It's really saying this. Um, I'm calling you as a believer to a radical call of discipleship. No matter what church age you live in, and the reason is, is despite being a, even though you're a Christian, you're going to have to face trials. And so you're going to have to persevere and go through them knowing that Jesus is going to bring justice and he will win in the end. So let me write this letter to you to help you persevere and be radical for the Lord, knowing that he does bring victory and you will be rewarded. And so the whole rest of the letter from 6 to 22 is that message. And I'm preaching it from that perspective going forward. Lord, we give you thanks for the day. Man, it's been a lot to, of information from right from the announcements in terms of things we're learning to the, the message today. And I pray, God, that uh, with everything being said, that there's one or two items in everyone's lives where your Holy Spirit has spoken to them. And we don't want to be just simply hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And so whatever principle we are to take away from today's lessons and whatever your spirit's been gnawing on us for, that we would walk away seeking to honor you with that one thing. And uh, that, again, that would be the way we'd be perfected in our faith and to persevere in the trials that we're going through. So, yeah, we, we look forward to your kingdom coming. We look forward to you enacting justice in this world. But we also have to learn to trust you in your timing and look at the evangelistic heart you have for people. If the Apostle Paul had been judged by you in the timing that I wanted, I'd be missing a lot of the New Testament and one of the greatest evangelists of all time. And so when we, when we look at you, look over the world, we have to say, hey, you know what you're doing. You know the timing, you're on the throne, we're not. And we just have to leave it in your hands and just persevere knowing you've got great rewards for us. So we look forward to serving you in the next coming week.
And we look forward to answering the question next week is who can stand on the day of wrath when you come back? And I'm excited for that day in Christ's name. Amen.